Welcome back to the Rise After the Fall. Today we want to talk about really how this whole thing began for Sonny and I. We told you a little bit of our story in one of our previous episodes, but we get a lot of people who ask us, how did this whole thing begin? Almost like you're at a table at dinner where they look across and they're trying to figure out how to start the conversation. And so the proverbial question presents itself. How did you guys even meet? So I think that's really the genesis of this story for us. It, it also was meteoric. Our life has seemingly been that. And so we want to pull back the curtain, rewind the reel a little bit, and let you know how this whole thing began. We started in fast forward, and we rarely slowed it down or paused. <laughs> that's been our story, and it's who we both are, right? So we met. Uh, by going on a walk after being introduced by my roommate, right? We did. And we went on a walk. So we met by taking a walk around our tiny little Bible college campus. And when you say tiny, you're, that's a gross misunderstatement. It was the University of North Dakota or it, North Dakota State University prior to Trinity Bible College. But we're talking like it was back in the 19th. 1910, era. If you want to know the history of Trinity Bible College, there is a book written years and years ago. I think it was called The One Dollar Miracle. It's by a, an evangelist who was the president of Trinity named Lowell Lundstrom and how Trinity got that campus. It was either for a dollar or a hundred dollars. And it's a beautiful campus. It was in the middle of nowhere. Ellendale, North Dakota, but it was, it was beautiful. It had some stately old buildings, one of which you lived in, Davidson Hall. And yes, we were introduced by your roommate and not to refute what you said, but I had peeped you before that. We were in the cafeteria at Trinity Bible College and you walked in after volleyball practice. And I looked at my roommate, Dave Ferguson, a.k.a. Sarge. And I said, gosh, I think I'm going to marry that girl. <laughs> he said, who is she? I said, I don't know. I'd never met you before. But there was just this draw, this, this magnetism, I guess you would, that I had never experienced before. It was like a spiritual kindredship, kinship, I guess is the word that I just felt from across the room. And, and he responded to me, well, I guess you probably better meet her. <laughs> <laughs> and so it began like that. It began in a whirlwind and the whirlwind never stopped until it seemed like we were in utter devastation. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and then that back to that walk, which we met each other through my roommate. Then after that, I later found out that it was love at first sight. Our kids ask us, do you think there's such a thing? And there was love at first sight of my calves is what I tell them. But <laughs> no, it was more of a, a that spiritual connection, obviously. But then we went on a walk. And at the end of the walk, which all I knew was I kind of like, well, I did like this guy. He obviously was interested in me. We're taking a walk, not a date, no dinner, just a walk. And at the end, we kind of sat under a tree or leaned under a tree. And I said, you know, if you don't think this is going to end in marriage, we just should end it now. And there was a long pause, as you're really good at doing. And our listeners have heard that before. Like, are they still there? <laughs> there was a long pause. And you said... Can I let you know tomorrow? Yeah, that was devastating. So I went back to said roommate and flopped down on my dorm bed. And I said, I just blew it. She goes, why would you say that? I'm like, I don't know. It literally just came out of my mouth. And, and it did. I mean, it was one of those times I felt like I was not in control of my mouth. Like it wasn't like, I like him so much, I want to say it. It's like it came out of my mouth and I was trying to pull it back in as it was coming out of my mouth. So I feel like you had that moment with me. I had that moment with you. And then the next day we just acted like everything or nothing happened. And so we, that was August. We were both playing sports. I was playing volleyball. You were playing football. And uh, that's August. We obviously just naturally started dating really probably talking marriage or inferring marriage right away. And then you Well, asked, you had just proposed to me, so yeah. clearly we were thinking about marriage. 
And clearly <laughs> I know now 26 years later, you took that as a proposal. I took it as weird words, but I guess it is pretty Well, when you proposally. said, I need to know where this is going to end, if this isn't going to end in marriage, I was like, I thought this was just a walk. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know that this was an audition for American Idol or that this this was a job interview. I just felt like I was going on a walk with a really cute and really sweet girl who had fantastic calves. And, and when it ended in such an abrupt fashion, I, I had to put my mind around that. It, that's a big thing to think about in the middle of a walk. To, to, I, if, if I think if I had started the walk thinking about it, perhaps I would have had however long that walk was to kind of contemplate. And, and so when you're in the middle of some sort of a big decision, it, it feels like it at least deserves you to sleep on it. There are a few other decisions that we've made in our life that perhaps we should have slept on mm-hmm. before we made that decision. And so, yes, we, we, we began dating and you asked me to marry you at my parents on Christmas break. That's December. So people were talking August, September, preseason, dating, whatever, engaged, betrothed immediately. December, you asked me to marry you after you gave me 17 gifts and took me to a shooting range to shoot guns, which I wasn't afraid of because um, I was raised on a ranch. But then we we're going to get married like the next August or give it some time. Yeah. We were going to get married in your yard in the gazebo where I proposed to you. It was going to be this beautiful picturesque wedding in your hometown of Belfouche, South Dakota, where your parents were the largest employer. Everyone knew you. You were the bell of the ball. It was, you know, you had your issues at yeah, prior I wasn't to quite that. The bell of the ball, but <laughs> no you wanted to make me the bell the of the ball. Bell. bell. Of the ball. Rango, of the ball. So I, we just had these intentions of this beautiful fairy tale wedding. And then you got deported because your student visa, you dropped below full-time status because you were working multiple jobs after or during football season and dropped below full-time status. And Canada contacted you and said, hey, buddy, you lost your visa. You have to come back. And you literally had to go back that next semester after Christmas. And I was like, oh my gosh, I just found the man of my dreams. I'm going to get married, but he's going to go live in another country. Yeah, and that was the intention that I would would spend the next semester back in Canada working. And you would go back to school and, and then we would reunite and we would get married in the summer. It's the normal thing to do, except your parents. Except I come by my personality, honestly, right? <laughs> my 100%. mom's like, my mom's like, hey, I had an idea. What if we give you the wedding money? Which, first of all, I'm the oldest, the first child. I don't think my mom. I mean, it was 26 years ago. There's been inflation, but oh. I think she said, "What if we give you what we'd spend on a wedding to help you get started? We'll give you five thousand." Was it ten thousand? It was. It now it feels I like back. it was ten thousand dollars. Okay, because so, I think those two numbers. Interestingly, those two numbers both pop up in my mind. Okay, too. maybe it was we put five thousand down on our first apartment after just <laughs> said we're going to pay in full. We did. We did pay for that in full. Okay, that's a whole nother. That's story. a whole nother story. So yeah, I think it was like we'll give you every today. People are paying. 50 grand to start on weddings for a small wedding. So we're like, oh, $10,000 is so much money. Let's also be clear with the people. You were 17 years old. $10,000 was a million dollars to me. Here's, here's the point. You were 17 years old. You had already been to college. You were going to talk about fast track. You were 17 years old. You were already in college. You had already finished a semester of college. Now you've met the love of your life. You have been proposed to, you have said yes. He's about to be deported. This is like a movie. He's about to be deported. Your mother steps forward. I have a 17-year-old daughter now. I I love your mom. She's one of my favorite people on earth. I would never. I would, I just think about my daughter who's 17. There's no way that she's prepared for it. But you were definitely... On the fast track to maturity, you had been through a whole lot of life, which that'll be another episode, just your story and how that unfolded because there there was so much 
that happened in your life, so many tragic things that had happened throughout the course of your life that the rate of your maturity was so accelerated. You were ready. I'm not questioning whether or not you were ready, but when I look at that, I think when people understand us being on the fast track, that's kind of been the theme of our life, being in fast forward. And here we are, you're 17, your parents are volunteering to give us a a startup fund. And so February the 10th, 1996, the day of our Lord, was the most fantastic day. And even that had challenges to it. Mm-hmm. We we went to Canada, your family, because I couldn't legally be in America and be married. And so we we went to my hometown of Windsor, Ontario, and your family came and your your aunt and your bridesmaids and Yeah. And we got married in February. And right before that, my parents signed me over to you and you were my legal guardian. I was. Because that had to be legal. But in return for being my legal guardian, you you got to come to America. (laughs) And I've never thought, only a (laughs) 17-year-old wouldn't think, is he marrying me to get back in America? Obviously, that's proven false that you only married me for that. But we went through the immigration thing and then we went on our honeymoon to Nashville. We're not going to give you every play-by-play for the first 26 years, but um, stayed at our our wedding. No, the day after our wedding on the way, um, day after our honeymoon night, we stayed at a Ramada Inn almost to Nashville with a guitar-shaped pool. And we thought we had hit a lot of we lotto. thought we were something man a and, guitar-shaped pool mm-hmm. i don't know i still think that would be cool even today yeah. but i'm kitschy yeah so so we get to nashville we think you're going to become a recording artist you did have a connection with amy grant rebecca st james those two artists their producer which some of the old heads actually know who those people are and we just had walked out of god's plan and will we were to graduate bible college but we because we live a a Roomba life right. and always have, which is the vacuum, the round vacuum that goes on its own in multiple directions. When it hits a wall, it goes, and then it turns around and goes the other way until it hits another wall. And so we just, we went to Nashville, hit a wall within six, seven months, called mom and dad and headed out to the ranch. And uh, so that's the beginnings, but it was fast tracked. We end up back at Bible college and we thought, and we had no other framework. We didn't come from a family of counselors. It wasn't cool to have a therapist, a counselor, a life coach. Even 26 years ago, the stigma, I think honestly, church, the churches we were involved in, the stigma was even higher. Like you don't need some psychologist who's gonna do some, I mean, I had a counselor, I ended up with a pre-counseling degree, so I learned this stuff. But I remember being in a class and my counseling professor said, we're going to watch a video of people. You tell us, tell me at the end of this, if you think that they have split personalities, if they're bipolar, if they're all these things, or if they're just demonically possessed. And at the end, I think everyone in the class came to the conclusion that I believe she wanted, which was they're all demon-possessed. So that started me on, and frankly, when you watch a schizophrenic and they're on a white wall in a video, like a mugshot, having an episode, you're like, that looks really freaky, like spiritual. So I believe that that just solidified the, if you get Jesus, all you need is Jesus, it'll fix everything, which I believe that God can heal everything. He has the ability and power. But as I look back, I can still remember that video. It was more nuanced than she got possessed. Maybe it was a chicken and an egg thing, right? Right. Uh, but you could point to scripture, like the girl who, you know, the demons were cast out of her in the Bible. And so the context was very much, why would we, unless we're um, needing to go to premarital counseling, why would you and I, with any issues or struggles, because I'm 17 and married and getting a kitchen table from you for my 18th birthday. (laughs) Like, why would we need any help emotionally or psychologically? We got Jesus. Well, we didn't even go through premarital counseling. We had one session with the guy who would perform our wedding, not even with the guy who would perform our wedding. We had one pre-counseling session with his assistant. 
And when we went through the counseling session, he asked us a few questions. And when we answered them, we were like, we've never had a fight. Mm-hmm. Of course we hadn't had a fight. We'd known each other for two and a half months at that point. <laughs> what had we had to fight about at that point? We were still in the honeymoon phase. We were still getting to know one another. And yet God so dramatically had his hand on both of our lives. Always has. The, the favor of God has been overwhelming in both of our lives. And so he continued to give us magnificent opportunities, opportunities that we didn't deserve, opportunities we weren't looking for, everything from internships to jobs to salaries to speaking opportunities to books that have been written. And it's all been a whirlwind. And our our friend, as our kids call Uncle Barry, Pastor Barry, Barry Edgman, told us when we were young youth pastors. It's a bit of a warning. It was like two years in. Two years into our ministry. Mm-hmm. He said, God's got you on the fast track and you need to guard yourself. I don't think we guarded ourselves. We just embraced the fact that we were on the fast track. We liked that part. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people do that mm-hmm. though. There are people who want to enjoy the successes and ignore the warning signs. And anybody who's gone through a fall, it didn't happen quickly. It's always happened over an extended period of time. Share the thing that you did last night. We did a training with our staff on speaking, and you said the three things that, I can't remember who you quoted, they said about in ministry. These are the three principles. Uh, Preach your own messages. Oh, yeah, uh, Phil Pringle, the president mm. of C3, who pastors C3 in Sydney, Australia, said, let me give you the three keys to success in ministry. Preach your own sermons, spend your own money, and sleep with your own spouse. And if you'll do those three things, you will end up being successful. And in it the reminds me of that Barry said to us, you're on the fast track. We like that part but the warning of guard yourself is like that advice that a lot of times people are like, oh yeah, I heard that 15 years ago, but I just didn't heed this very, we, this very simple formula. We had somebody else that told us, the pastor's wife, keep your hand out of the offering and sleep with your own wife. Yeah. She said it a little more crude than that. It was crude. She was 80 and had been married. But it was some of the best advice I've ever heard in my life. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've repeated that advice to lots of people, but I didn't always follow it. What's interesting is that people tend to mention those things after a fall. Oh, yeah. Because in the midst of the, and we talked, you know, in a previous episode about being weary. In weariness, you're not like, okay, preach my own sermons. In weariness, you're like, okay, I just took this from offline and a pastor and took every sermon and I'm not giving any credit. Right. I'm not giving any credit to the quotes in in my message. I'm just going to impress people because I'm so weary. I can't write my own message. The point is preach other people's message. You don't have to say, Phil Pringle said, you know, I took this message, but like there's times that, you know, we act like we said the quote that actually Robert Emerson said. Like, just give credit there, right? They're right. speaking plagiarism, but it's there's nothing new under the sun. And so, like, that's a small example, but in weariness, we start to wear out to that. We wear out to, you know, pastors worn out to spend your own money. We talked about a pastor who's, like, built himself a cabin on a lake with right. church money. Yeah. Not with what he made from the church and paid taxes, just straight up... Yeah, and it's not like the board said, we really love you. We know yeah. you're weary. Let us let us build you a cabin on the lake. He just did it. embezzled money. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know how that didn't get caught, how that didn't get picked up, unless it did get caught and picked up. And here's the thing there, in every failure, there is a collection of enablers. There is a trail of people who saw something, felt something, who thought something, who ignored that or confronted, quote unquote, confronted that person and then allowed that person to continue on. There were lots of people like that in my life. Lots of people who saw things, who noticed things, who even brought things up, but then turned around and enabled me because my talent was something that they needed. The difficult thing is to confront someone who you need 
and then pull them away from the thing that you need them mm-hmm. for. Mm-hmm. And if we had more people in our lives who would sit us down and restore us, and that's part of what we want to do with our pastoral restoration program is that we want to take people who need to be sat down. Mm-hmm. We had to be sat down. At, it, finally, we had to be sat down because I started to say that failure is never quick. It, mm. it is slow. It is progressive. And it sometimes looks like it was this explosion that happened, but it, it there was a seeping that happened. Failure is like a run flat tire. You have a high-end car and it's got run flats and you can puncture that tire and you can go for 50 miles on a tire with a hole in it. But when those 50 miles are up, see the purpose of a run flat tire isn't so that you can run with no air in your tire. The purpose of a run flat tire is if a if an accident happens, you can get to the next place that will allow you to repair or replace the tire. So if we live our lives under that, that we've we've gone through an accident, we've there's something that's punctured the wall of our lives. Okay, we're going to we're going to drive on that thing until we get to the next place where that thing can be replaced or repaired. But instead, we run on that thing like, "Oh, well I've got run flats." And at some point, somebody's got to say, you got to have a passenger in your car who understands run flat tires, who says, bro, we've gone 46 miles in the next, this, we got a service station right here. We better stop here because if we go four more miles, we're going to be stuck in the middle of nowhere. Which brings us to 10, 12 years, no, probably 10 years into our marriage, we finally went to a couple different pastors who were over us to say, we don't have anything like immoral in our marriage. We're not doing anything unethical, but like we fight bad. And, you know, both of our parents in their marriage, they were yellers and yeah. we were around them fighting. There was no punching and physical abuse, um, not even verbal abuse, just like yelling at each other. And so that's, we just thought this is marriage. You yell at each other. And we we're just like, gosh, at times we feel like, like I remember Sunday morning in Memphis, we'd go to church and, you know, be the youth pastors, do our thing. We might have a fight Sunday afternoon, but we had to pick up our lip and get a smile on by Sunday night church because not only do we need to go in looking like we're good, we've got youth walking up and we need to have a cheery face. And and we had learned how to master that, yep. like to just turn it on and off. And, and so we got to a point, it was 10 years in, it was years after Memphis. And we were just like, I don't know, I feel like a fraud. Like I definitely, we're at a place where we have people coming to us with questions about marriage because they know we've been married for 10 years. And we're, we are successful to an extent in ministry. So people are like, I want to be like you guys. And we're thinking, if no, you, you were at home with us, <laughs> like we'll just cuss each other out and like the same mouth we're blessing God and worship or cursing each other. And what is wrong with us? And we would passionately fight and we loved each other. I mean, we, we'd make up and we were best friends. There was definitely the codependence. And so when we finally, as you're saying, the, the run flat tire, when it was like, okay, we need to like fix that part, the behind the scenes part. We went to a couple different pastors that either were over us or worked alongside of us. And they were like, wow, I mean, they didn't really know what to do. One of them said, make sure you don't go to the district because <laughs> that could affect your credentials. And we both held credentials and got paid because we were pastors. That I think was a, you know, in Journey to Wholeness, we talk about a moment where you were arrested in development, where that phrase or that situation made you go, oh, remember this. And so I remember in in that moment, just thinking, oh, that's the answer. Don't actually tell anybody because you could lose your whole living. Figure it out yourself. Yep. So we we did the run flat tire and we definitely went beyond another 50 miles where we just every few months, you know, we'd go, maybe we'll go to a marriage conference and, you know, the marriage, marriage weekend, whatever it yep. was, it's like there was no TVs in the hotel room. They'd taken everything away. Cell phones weren't even a thing really then that big of a deal. And we're like, we need to learn communication and not watch TV and force each other to talk to each other. There was so much more. Yeah. And uh, like you said, the seeping, we had gotten to the point that when we, when I finally left you at like year 13 and took the kids, I, it, we were in a really 
um, unhealthy church that we took over unhealthy. It was very unhealthy. And financially, the last pastor hadn't made payments on the building. We found out later. We took on a mess of a mess. And so it wore us down. We became weary, weary, weary. Uh, and we had never addressed the behind the scenes, our marriage issues. And so when I left you, in my head, I was leaving you, but I was also leaving that mess of a church and ministry and all it took out of us. And and at that point, the tire had been flat for a long time. Right. So now let's talk about what, that was our, that was our ultimate fall where we were like, we're just going to get a divorce. Right. We can't get help publicly or get anybody. We can't admit we're having issues. Seems so, like we couldn't get help privately. Nope. So no it's like, I guess our did. only option is divorce, which yeah. then you're really going to lose your credentials, which we did. We did. Because we separated. Yeah. I mean, we were separated for a while. It wasn't like you went away for the weekend and came back. Like we were separated. We had separate houses. Our kids had bedrooms in both of our houses. They were little. You went and lived in Florida for a period of time with your parents. You, Your dad stayed with me for a few days after you left and, and really, well, he didn't stay with me. He stayed in the same town as me. And he basically did that because he loved me even though he was mad at me. And as you said, we had, we had walked a path. We had been to marriage counseling. We had been to marriage coaching. We had been to individual counseling. I had gone through counseling. I had been through like professional therapy where they gave me medication, where they told me that I had generalized anxiety disorder and that I needed to be on an antidepressant. And I was on an antidepressant for a period of time in the ministry. Nobody knew it. My best friend knew it. And when I was acting crazy, when he was around, he would just put his hand on my shoulder and say, just take your pill. And it was just known to the people who I was really close to that I was, I had mental health issues and now mental health issues are hot right now. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to ignore those in ministry or in our professional lives. And so there's been a light that's been shined on that. But I was struggling with mental health and you had all this baggage from living a life that was like something out of a movie. Like when we tell our kids what your life was up until the moment that we got married, they're like, there's no way that that actually happened. And so we had all of these times that we tried to fix our problem. But again, people patting us on our head and people not wanting, I think this is conjecture, but I think it was a lot of people who didn't want us to affect them. And so when you have people in your life that don't care enough about you to take a hit for you, and we didn't have that. And so everything did implode. And now to be honest, there were people that we had in our life who who would have helped us if we went to them. So, But we didn't go to right. them as honest as the people no. we knew who didn't really care that much right. about us. We right. went to the wrong people. Right. So I'm not, I don't want to make a suggestion because there are plenty of people that loved us that if we would have been honest with mm -hmm. the right people, as you said. And so the whole thing did implode. And you know what? We had to get to a point where, I mean, we would, we would, throw around the divorce word prior to getting separated. And one of the big things that we would say is, you know, if we weren't in the ministry, we wouldn't be married. Mm -hmm. And and then, well, if we didn't have kids, we wouldn't be married. My estimation is we finally got to a place where we said, you know what, I don't care enough about the ministry. And we and you did walk away. And then I I had to fight for you but it took for me to lose ministry to realize that I wasn't married to you for ministry. And so we then had to go through a very intense recovery process. It was not easy and it was not short. It, it, was, a, it was a solid year of really difficult things where we went to different counseling programs, programs for certain things, mm -hmm. certain things that we were dealing with in the ministry that were symptoms. And that's what we found out. We went through, you know, a program where we went and we had a concentrated time in Colorado where we, we were locked in a cabin and basically 
they taught us about repentance. They made us read a bunch of John Piper books. And <laughs> Which made, is about fear of oh God. And and it's honestly, that was a big step to it realize great. we had lost fear of God and yes. we're in the ministry. Yes. It was a, you better get your fear of God back because you're going to hell right. and without we, we saying went, it. We went to Emerge, mm-hmm. the Assemblies of God, got us a appointment with Emerge. We went through counseling at Emerge. We did this thing in Colorado, but then the thing that really helped is when we came to Green Bay to go through what, what what's called freedom life skills. And in freedom life skills, what we learned is that we didn't actually have a marriage problem. You had a you problem and I had a me problem. And we took both of our individual problems and we put them in the same environment and we made those problems live with each other. And so anytime that I would have a me moment, anytime that I would trigger my problems would then be confronted by your problems. And we were both unhealthy people. That's what most people's marital issues are. They're not marriage problems. They're individual problems. And so what we had to do is we had to break apart and we had to go through individual counseling that determined what was the root of our issue. Because if you don't get to the root, it'll continue to grow back. And so we had to figure out where is it that we were arrested in development or as the secular psychology would call, where is it that we were fixated? Where is it that we were paused in our emotional and spiritual development that anytime that we experienced trauma, we would trigger back to that. And for me, we learned that it was something that happened to me in the first grade. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of being arrested in development I'll give a quick synopsis of it. At some point in your life, there's been a trauma, a major trauma. It could be one thing for one person and another thing for another, but there is a major moment of trauma. And in that moment, your brain was incapable of processing the emotions that are associated with that moment of trauma. So your brain locks up and then your brain does not develop emotionally more than 18 months beyond that point when you're confronted with trauma or when you're confronted with some pressure, pressure, right? So yes, your brain continues to develop in some regard, but anytime you experience difficulty, let's say, your mind reverts back to that moment where it was arrested in development. So for me, it was first grade. So if you can only mature emotionally 18 months past that moment of trauma, I would always at best, respond to adversity like a third grader. And how is it that third graders react to things? Well, for me as a third grader, I would yell, I would cuss, I would lie, I would hide things. You would constantly find mail that was hidden in a drawer. And sometimes it was meaningless mail. It was a $17 bill for something and it would be hidden, but I would put it in a drawer because I didn't want you to find out that I that we owed $17 on something. And you being responsible, coming from a family that had means, you're like, if we get a $17 bill, let's pay the $17 bill. I'm not going to yell at you third grader because we have a $17 bill. We're going to pay the bill. And but so, I didn't know you were a third grader. Right. So I'm looking at a grown man going, we're going to pay $20 in a late fee and just come at you like, are you an idiot? Yeah. Which my arrest and development was as a little kid. And then there were other points as a teenager. So then I would respond over the $17 bill, like someone freaking out who's a child. So now we're like doing everything, but laying down on the floor, kicking our legs like a Toddler, because we were a little more mature than that emotionally, but we were kids fighting. We were kids fighting. And it created this dynamic in our home of living from one fight to the next, surviving. And I think we just both got to a point where we're tired of surviving. Mm -hmm. And when we went through Freedom Life Skills, what that does is it, it identifies the moment where you are arrested in development. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, and also in the secular psychological atmosphere, this can be unlocked. But the minute that that is unlocked, almost instantly, 
you begin to experience a miraculous recovery from that. It's like, it's like where the Bible says we are transformed by the renewing of our mind mm. and it unlocks this section, like physically unlocks this section in your mind and the neurons begin to shoot throughout your brain and they have brain scans that show- It's rewiring. That it is rewiring. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing that, I mean, literally within weeks, I was, it wasn't a full recovery. It takes three years for the full rewiring to happen. But you weren't just an adjusted Sean. Like, like, man, if Sean could be 20% better, I'd go back and let's stay married. You were a different human to me. And still are. There was a rush of supernatural transformation that happened in both of us and mm-hmm. in everyone who we know who who was ready to go through that process. I mean, I know people who have gone through that program and it didn't work like it did for us, but we were at a place where we were ready for the change. And so for some of our listeners, they are ready for the change and it would be miraculous. But for others, they're not ready for the change yet because they haven't hit rock bottom. For us, we had hit rock bottom. Mm-hmm. Where else could we go? Mm-hmm. Like I spent six months unemployed. I I could not get a job. You worked as, as a barista and a manager at a coffee shop where you were waking up at five o'clock in the morning and driving across town to go and work at a coffee shop. Like we had gone from being the pastors of a relatively large church, being relatively successful and well-known to being an unemployed guy and a girl who works at a coffee shop. And you want to know something? It was the greatest time of my life. Mm -hmm. I spent six months learning who Jesus is. I With the new brain, right? So the neurons are just sparking and flying. Yeah, and to the point where probably about six months into it, I I hadn't seen a couple of my very close friends the whole time because I just felt damaged. And I, I kind of distanced myself. But then when I started to heal and I saw them again, I, I'll remember one of my very good friends who we used to talk every day, he was like, bro, you're literally not even the same person. Like it's like being around a totally different person. And... So when we got to this point where we submitted ourselves to this healing process where I recognized I need to heal me if I want to be married to you. And in the process of losing the ministry, I realized that I really didn't care about ministry. I was like, fine. Actually, at at one point, I didn't want to go back in ministry. And I had an older pastor who had known me before who who came to us and said that we were wasting ourselves by being on the bench, especially now as healed people. And so, you know, here we are on the other side of it. It's been more than a decade of healing and of our brains being fully rewired. And we're not perfect, but I mean, our marriage is phenomenal. Our relationship with our kids is phenomenal. Our finances are healthy and clean. Our church is growing and thriving even in the midst of and coming to the back of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. It's like everything that we could have experienced in the first 15 years or 13 years, we've now experienced in the second 13 years. And the key was recognizing that we were wounded. We were on the fast track. We were on the fast track individually And then we were on the fast track corporately. But that fast track that we were on was the path to destruction because we were not healthy. And so once we got healthy, once we got the help that we needed, God put us back. We were on the fast track to good things, and then we were on the fast track to bad things. things, And then God put us back on the fast track to good things, which we were then prepared for. And I am married to a different person the second 13 years and I was married to the first 13 years. And probably the public us looks similar. You had great talents, gifts, you could speak, you could sing, you were good with people. 
I have similar gifts. I mean, we have interns that are in ministry now and, you know, keep in touch and they're doing high, great and they're very successful and they would think we were awesome back then. So here's the thing, some pastors, you're having public success, yep. but the private, you're like, I hope nobody knows or it has come out, whatever it may be. And and I think the key to when we did what now we call and we've, we've developed Journey to Wholeness that saved our marriage because we got whole and healthy through Journey to Wholeness, the key was you have to fall. The rise after the fall is possible because you fall completely. We talked in an episode about that. You've got to fall completely. Now, you don't want to wish yourself, like go do crazy things and hurt people. It's just, you have to let your pride fall completely. You have to be at a point. And for us, what did we have to lose? Nothing. That was the benefit of us getting separated and losing our credentials. What else did we have to lose? Like, and losing our jobs, like we literally had nothing to lose. Our parents knew everything, but the reason we hadn't gotten help for years before is because we weren't willing to let all people in on all things. And we felt like we have so much to lose. And some pastors and leaders listening to this, they're like, you, I mean, I can't lose my salary. I'm a grown man and need to support my family. And here's the deal. If you're headed for a fall, it's Satan will come after you and his law of diminishing returns. It'll get uglier and nastier the longer you wait. Well, I can speak from experience, particularly to the guys who are watching this, because I, I, I think I felt some of that too. I had a comfortable salary. I had great benefits. I had health care. I had retirement going into my 403B from my job. I had a free car. You had a free car. Like part of our salary was that, you know, I was driving a brand new Lincoln Navigator. You were driving a brand new sedan, all wheel drive sedan. We had a beautiful home, a beautiful office. I mean, my office had a shower. It had its own garage. I had a garage in my office at my church and we had money in the bank. We were able to go on vacations, all of that stuff. And we lost all of those things. And when we went through our recovery, when we moved to Green Bay, a friend of ours set us up with a friend of his who had a house that we could rent. We paid $500 a month to live in that house. Half of the house didn't have heat. In Green Bay, Wisconsin. We we had no cable, no internet, and no heat. And the only part of the house that had heat our kid's bedroom was in. Our bedroom didn't have heat in it. So we had to just put multiple blankets on it. We had a little gas fireplace in the house. We had no money for food. I remember our kids eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Like, like that was all we could afford. And I will tell you right now, unequivocally, it was the greatest time of my life. Men, it was the greatest. In the moment, I felt worthless. I couldn't get a job. I couldn't get a job at McDonald's. I applied to McDonald's. They told me that I was un- overqualified. I applied to work at TSA at the airport. And they told me that they couldn't give me a job because I had bad credit. And I was like, oh, well, I, I need a job because I have bad credit. I just lost everything. And, and it, it, it was... L- literally God would not Mm -hmm. let me get a job. And the reason for that is because I had to not replace what I had been earning with something else. I needed to sit down. And it was the first time that I had read the entire Bible cover to cover. I'd been in ministry for over a decade and hadn't read the whole book. And there are guys listening to this right now who they are guilty of that same thing. They preach the same seven stories and they figure a way to spin them. And they're good at what they do so so nobody notices that they don't actually know the content. I sat down and I read the Bible in 90 days, the whole thing. And it was, it was a lot, but I had the time to do it now. I started journaling during that time. I did P90X during that time, got myself in a little better shape. I was able to work on the parts of my life that I was insecure about, that I was broken in, that I didn't have the time to focus on because I was focusing on whatever the ministry was telling me that I needed to focus on. So that when I came back into the ministry, I now, I had some semblance of what I should be doing and what I shouldn't be doing. And so for the guys who are listening particularly, and I know that there's 
ladies, that you're in full-time ministry, and I'm not trying to suggest anything other than I know the challenges that a man goes through to think, well, I need to be the provider. Guess what? For six months, I wasn't the provider. You were the provider. You worked the job, made the money, brought home the bacon, and it was the best thing that could have happened to me because it, it broke that unhealthy pride that was in me. Here's the deal. You're going to fall. God loves you too much. If you are in the midst of sin, you are going to fall. Be sure, the Bible says, your sin is going to find you out. And to come back to your point where you said that we weren't fully telling people the story, that's why, that's why scripture says, cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. We have kids and what we know is we care enough about our kids that, that sometimes we need to let them fail. Sometimes they need to learn some lessons. And if, if we love our kids enough that we would do that, who, how much more does God love us who is incapable of not loving? And I, I just believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that I don't think God wanted us to fall but I think God allowed us to fall. And I'm so grateful, looking back, so grateful that we fell all the way, that we didn't just get some communication tips at a marriage conference and we're doing a little better now. We only fight once a week. No, now if we fight, we're like, what's happening? We need to talk about this. Like every several months, maybe. And then we both are better at apologizing or being like, God will correct us a lot quicker now because we're, actually adults in our in our emotions too. And we know the language. Yeah, the language. Say, lang- I'm sorry, I was triggered by blah, blah, blah. When mm-hmm. you did that, that triggered me. And that made me feel like where now we're kind of getting to the source. And I love what you're saying that we fell all the way. I love that, yeah. that we fell all the way. So we have within uh, an exchange collaborative, which is for pastors and leaders, Um, Lots of resources and tools within the Exchange Collaborative, but one of the major resources is our restoration program for pastors, which incorporates the thing we were talking about, Journey to Wholeness, which you get healthy, the other spouse gets healthy, you come together, you're like, wow, we didn't have a marriage problem. We had a, I had a me problem. And so that, that is something that we offer that we have the links here in the podcast and the website is the exchangecollaborative.com. So people can check that out because if you have a little itch, like, oh, maybe we should do something, you're better to not wait, right? We didn't get better with time. We got worse with time. And now that we did journey to wholeness, now that the key is we do get better with time. Yeah, a relationship that is being lived by two unhealthy people isn't like wine, it's like milk. It doesn't get better with age. It just gets worse, it just turns sour. And so we have felt for a long time that God wants us to give our lives to pastors. And I don't think that that's changed. I just think that that's accelerated. As somebody gave help to us, we wanna be help to them. And it's difficult. I understand that it's difficult. And I've communicated to people. Like if you're on staff somewhere, you can't go to your pastor because you're afraid you're going to lose your job. If you're a senior pastor, you don't feel like you can go to your board or to your district because you're going to lose your church. But losing your job or losing your church may be the best thing Mm -hmm. that can happen to you. Not just worth it, but the actual thing that needs to happen. Yes. Yes. And so we want to be there to walk alongside guys. What if you just walked away rather than you let the thing fall apart and you walked away in this cloud of shame. If you're listening to this and you're in the midst of a, of a fall, you know what you're supposed to do. The Holy Spirit hasn't been ignoring you. He hasn't been silent. There's someone listening to this who the Holy Spirit has been telling them, you need to resign. Mm-hmm. And they've been, they've been rationalizing it and they know that they need to resign. Whoever you are, you need to reach out to us because I promise you we will help you. Until next time. Hi. 
Hi, friends. It's Sunny again. And I just want to say, Sean and I appreciate your faithful listening. And we hear all the time that many of you are sharing this. In fact, we've had a few people say, I tell everybody I know, specifically other pastors and leaders about this podcast. And so we may have shared in our early season two episode about the story of getting a retreat center that we're now going to call the reserve, Uh, 20 acres, multiple houses, and the ability to house pastors and leaders, their families. We're going to basically say we're hosting the hurting, we're hosting the betrayed, we're restoring the betrayer. Uh, And so now we have a campus to do that on a, a 20 acre property to do that on as well as we'll continue to bring people into Green Bay and we provide um, help in the finances for that and the housing for that at times as needed. Also, we'll continue to go to people. We've done that over the last couple of years, flown directly to couples in crisis. That's been an ongoing thing that Sean and I, Pastor Becky, Pastor Barry have done. But what I wanted to ask you is that um, because this retreat center is $1.8 million, which actually for 20 acres, a massive house, other housing, uh, it's really reasonable. We just happened to find it in a great location. And the person who's selling it to us has a ministry heart. He's on the board of the church that we interned at coming right out of Bible college. It's just crazy, the God story. But we need to get $600,000 as the down payment. Now he's going to spread that over the first year. So it's 54,000 a month. Then after that, the 1.2 million that we will finance with him, those payments will start and that's in the 70 some hundred dollars. So $7,000 a month plus utilities and expenses, but that's much more palpable than 54,000 a month. But for this first year, we're grateful that we didn't have to come up with 600,000 to even begin work on the property. We already own it. We're already doing construction. But what I would ask you is if you would consider, and you may say, it's me. I have, you know, $100,000 put away for our church that we are going to start construction on something. Or you may say, I have $1.8 million at the church I lead and we were breaking ground. But I feel, <laughs> this is the crazy thing. I've heard some crazy stories about pastors who after having the money or praying for the money and they get it for something God's having them do, God told them to give it away. But then God exceeded their expectation and they came back and had eightfold, ninefold. I know of a church in Texas, this just happened. Uh, They gave a million dollars they had raised to break ground on a new property. And someone had had been at this conference with them and they had a roof that had caved in and it was a million dollars to repair it. And God told him, give the million dollars. Well, he did. And within a few weeks, they had a company come to them and offer them money for the land and to give them land they owned. And they basically were given about $8 million from their million dollars they gave away. So I just know that when Sean and I even have given $1,200, which was our first big gift when we were first married at a conference and God told us give everything. And we had $1,201 in our bank account, which was a ton for us. It was like our savings. We gave it, we got home and we had a check in our mailbox for $1,250. Now we made $49 on that, but it increased our faith. We made a lot of return on our faith and that investment and knowing God will never ask us to give that he doesn't have a huge plan. So I take this time to say, you might be the one that says, we're going to give you 1.8. You'll never have to worry about money as you do this ministry. You might say, we're going to give you 600,000 for the down payment so that you don't have to stress for the first year at 54,000 a pop as you build it out. Or you might say, we're going to give monthly or we have something else in mind. Thank you for considering it. Thank you for stepping out in faith and thank you for being a faithful listener to this. We appreciate you.